Welcome, everyone, to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Josh Sellers, a professor of law at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And I'm Henry Thompson, a professor of political science at Arizona State University School of Politics and Global Studies. This is an interview show in which we talk with scholars, writers, intellectuals, and thought leaders about civil dialogue, the American political tradition, and intellectual life more broadly. We're two friends who agree on many things, disagree on many things, yet share a commitment to exploring difficult issues in the spirit of improving liberal education and public discourse. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Keeping It Civil podcast. Our guest this week is Lara Bazelon. Lara is a law professor and the director of the Criminal and Juvenile Law and Racial Justice Clinics at the University of San Francisco School of Law. Henry and I had a wide-ranging conversation with her in which we discussed her thoughts on systemic racism. Uh, That's a topic that she spoke about when she was here on campus at Arizona State back in January. Uh, We discussed her work representing indigent clients around the country, including a client named Utico Briley, whose case was widely publicized after it was revealed that he was wrongfully convicted for armed robbery. We discussed the current status of so-called progressive prosecutors, uh, and then we concluded by discussing her new book on motherhood, Ambitious Like a Mother, Why Prioritizing Your Career is Good for Your Kids. So as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. So welcome to the podcast, Laura. I wanted to start by asking you about systemic racism. This is a topic that you've written and spoken about as of late. So why don't we start by just having you tell us how you understand systemic racism? This is a very charged issue that is extremely fraught and hard to discuss and open to debate and tends to make people very angry. In part, that's because we can't really settle on a definition and we also can't even settle, I think, on common terms. But if you ask me what I think it is, based on 20 years of practicing law as a public defender and an advocate for wrongfully convicted people and a law professor, I would say that it is the kinds of biases that are baked into the system in ways that are visible, but also, and more often, invisible in the way that the laws are designed, but also in the way that face-neutral laws operate I know that people have other definitions in other fields. The field of criminal justice happens to be my area of expertise. So I'm more comfortable kind of sticking to that ground. So Laura, you were a federal public defender for several years. And this conversation about systemic racism, it's been with us for a long time, but it's it's been foregrounded, I think, more recently. I'm just, I'm wondering if this was a, a topic that you had top of mind during those those years as a federal public defender, or this is something that you know has kind of captured your attention more recently? That's a good question. I think from the get-go, representing the people I represented over the course of that seven years, and then running a small innocence project in LA, I was very aware of who the system tends to single out and punish without fair process and punish, in in my opinion, excessively. In my experience, sort of anecdotally, and then later as an academic in my research, disproportionately, it seemed to me that it was people of color and the poor who were the most impacted. I'm not sure that in 2001 or 2005 or even 2010, the words 
systemic racism or mass incarceration were part of my vocabulary, but I knew what I saw and that's what it looked like. Why do you think the um, term has become so fraught over time, Lara? I think it's become fraught because people think, and I think this is a fair criticism, that it's been elasticized to the point where it's lost all meaning, that it's kind of used as an explanation for everything when it isn't. So do you think this, what we call in political science, conceptual stretching, do you think that's happened on the part of activists or politicians or scholars, or where do you think the conceptual stretching came from? I think as with any buzzword, it it sort of took on a life of its own. And so the answer is really everyone, I think, began not just overusing it, but using it for particular political agendas. And so kind of the core meaning of it became very personalized. So for example, someone listening to this might have heard me define it and think that's not what it means at all. I completely disagree with her. And I feel like that is kind of at the core of the problem. It's almost like a Rorschach test and people see what they want to see. So let's bring in more directly your experiences working in the criminal justice system. So how, based on your experience, would you say that systemic racism is, um, you know, baked into our criminal justice system? I have a relatively new example that I feel like I can share with you. My students and I in the racial justice clinic are litigating a case in Indianapolis. Our client, a black man, was convicted in 1998 of murdering a white man. He was essentially executed when he was sitting in his car. And... The case boiled down to a cross-racial identification by a stranger. It happened at 3.30 in the morning in a high-crime, fairly unsafe neighborhood. The woman who saw it was someone whose job it was to stock newspaper boxes back when people put a quarter in the boxes to get the Indy Star out. So she happened to be doing that. And she saw the shooting at some distance. I think it was like 140 feet That was really the state's case. She was their star witness, and they didn't have any forensic evidence, DNA, fingerprints, nothing like that. And they had another viable suspect who they didn't pursue, which is another story. But it's interesting to me that that was enough to convict. And recently, my students and I went to Indianapolis, and we interviewed the lead detective who's now retired. And I asked him over the course of your 25 to 30 year career, how many cases did you have with a white victim? And he counted on his fingers and he said three. And I said, and how many cases where you had a white victim and a black suspect? Did you have a white witness who was a disinterested party? And he said, none. And at that point, you know, you sort of understand what an anomaly this case was, how much pressure they were under to solve it. They had a very low solve rate. And the rush to judgment that kind of ensued from that. Now, is it unconstitutional to have somebody stand up and make a cross-racial identification? No, it's not. It's perfectly legal. But what we know now is that these kinds of identifications, particularly under the circumstances I described, never mind that, of course, this young woman was terrified, are very, very unreliable. I think that if you reverse the races of everybody and it came down to a young Black woman delivering newspapers, identifying a white man in the dark at a distance of 140 feet, I'm not sure that 12 people would have convicted. So that's one example of a law that is race neutral on its face, operating in what I think of is as a racially biased way. I think that the jury honestly valued my client's life 
less. Now you could argue that point, but I've seen it happen over and over and over again. And you look at the people who are being exonerated and overwhelmingly they're black and brown people. Some of the issue is the laws themselves. Some of the issues is obviously prosecutorial discretion. I'd like to talk to you about that if we have time. But what the situation you just described also, you know, we might describe it as a kind of hearts and minds problem, right? I mean, that, that ultimately it there's the systemic issues and then there are also um, the kind of judgments that in the case of a jury people make. And uh, that seems to me... Uh, it may be the more insurmountable problem. Uh, I'm, I'm curious what, what your thoughts are about kind of thinking about the, the system-based problems versus the, you know, hearts and minds type problems. I think you've got to address both because you can try to dismantle existing structures, but I don't know that people are going to make different judgments until their minds are changed, until they're able to look honestly at their own biases. And mostly those are implicit. We all have them until they're willing to kind of rethink the way that they have been moving around in the world. And so really you can try to force people to quote unquote, do the right thing by changing laws and policies. But the only way to really ensure that that will happen is to, as you say, change their hearts and minds. So Laura, you based, I think, to a large degree on some of the observations that you've made here, you've been very active in the movement to sort of push back against wrongful convictions of uh, people across the country. Maybe you'd talk a little bit about that, about how your academic research plays into your activism and the center that you run about uh, wrongful convictions and that sort of thing. You know, it's interesting. There's a pretty lively debate with my colleagues who also are criminal law scholars. Mostly they're they're not clinicians, they're podium professors, but they feel really strongly that you shouldn't be an activist, that you're really there to educate your students and offer them up the various opinions that are out there, but not really march out into the public sphere in this opinionated way. And I I respect that, but I'm not that person. I'm very much an advocate as an attorney and a law professor. And for me, my core job is to train my students, to train them how to be lawyers with real life cases. And so I necessarily have to take a passionate side and be zealous. And I guess I also think that there is a role for some academics, not all of them, but some in doing that in a more public minded way. And that's what I've decided to do with my academic career, but I also understand that that's not necessarily a conventional choice. What drives the cases? How do you, how do you locate clients and, and um, how do you identify what cases you're going to take on? There is not a whole lot of rhyme or reason to it. We had a case for a couple of years until my client was exonerated last year in Louisiana. And the only reason why was because my sister, who is a journalist, was corresponding with the man who later became our client. And this is uh, this is Utico Briley, right? Yes, this is Utico. Yeah. And essentially, my sister asked like everyone else on earth, and they said no. So that's <laughs> how that's how I came to be Utico's lawyer, which ended up being a joy and an honor. And then this case in Indianapolis is similarly sort of happenstance. I'm I'm close to a woman in Philadelphia named Shannon, and she is 
the niece of a crime victim. Her aunt was brutally raped and murdered in Philadelphia, where I'm from, and the wrong man was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. And Shannon became a real advocate for that man. His name is Tony Wright. And she was instrumental in getting him exonerated. And since then, she's been active in in looking for other people like Tony. And, And she found this man in Indiana through social media. And she called me and said, I really think you should take a look at this. And I trust Shannon. I trust her judgment. Mm -hmm. And I knew that she had done her due diligence. And then I learned that the Marion, no, it's called the Marion County Prosecutor Office. The DA there was also reviewing the case. And so because he didn't have a lawyer, we decided to take it. But both of those cases are very unusual. And in both situations, I have to have local counsel. I mean, to be honest, I had never been to Louisiana before I had Utico, Mm. and I had never been to Indiana before this client. So yeah, it sounds like quite that undertaking. Yeah, I don't know those state laws particularly well at all, actually, I should say. I didn't take the bar and pass the bar in Louisiana or Indiana. So, you know, it's a learning curve. You have to really catch up. And it's also just very, very important that you have local counsel who's going to be able to bring you up to speed and support you. I mean, I never tell them you have to do the work. We'll do almost all of the work, but I need them to make sure that I'm not making some kind of terrible mistake. Yeah, I heard about the Utica Briley case from reading your sister's piece in the New York Times. Uh, and I didn't realize that that's how it came to your attention as well. That's interesting. Did you work with her on, on that? Was that a kind of collaboration between the two of you? It really was. And it's interesting, when I was coming up as a young lawyer, as a public defender, we were always told to never, ever cooperate with the media. That was the worst (laughs) thing that you could ever do. (laughs) And so I was pretty opposed to the whole idea. But there were a couple of things that made this different. The first one was that for years, Utico's case was completely hopeless for reasons having to do with who the district attorney was and who the judge was. And so It didn't really seem like he had a chance of getting out unless there was some kind of agitation around his case and some awareness being brought to it. And so because I felt that he had nothing to lose, it seemed to make sense to collaborate. And the other reason was that he had a very strong relationship with my sister that pre-existed me. Mm -hmm. And that's what he wanted. He's the client. And third, my sister's a lawyer. She's a Yale-educated lawyer. She's never practiced, but she's brilliant. And I thought, well this is going to be really interesting to have this person who knows me and knows my client and knows the law and will be able to check me and challenge me. And it ended up being so interesting and so fun and so rewarding to get to do that together. Yeah. We went to Louisiana together. We, we pretty much did everything together and I made this pretty radical decision to share everything with her. She had my work product. She had my mental impressions. She had everything. Have all of your cases been successfully exonerated, Lara, or have you had some setbacks, some less successful cases? Oh my God. No, most of my clients are never getting out. Yeah. It's, it's, it, these victories are very rare. They're the ones that get talked about and and written about, but it makes me so sad. There are many, many people who are wrongfully convicted or rightfully convicted and just grossly oversentenced who will never, ever get out. And so that sounds like, again, a huge time and energy commitment for you and your organization to maintain that uh, support for those individuals. I can imagine that's a huge strain. It has an aspect, and my students talk about this, of sort of vicarious trauma where you feel like you know what the right outcome is, but you can't make that happen. And that this person is relying on you and you're not able to come through for them, despite 
sort of every exhaustive effort. And I think that's really hard lesson, but it's also important for the students to learn it. But yes, it is exhausting. And the other thing is I have a conception of the interning client relationship, was th- which is that, you know, it lasts outside of sort of the finite end of the case. I mean, your client's need you in various other respects sometimes moving forward to write a letter of reference or help them open a bank account or deal with a medical insurance issue. You know, when you're coming out of prison and you have nothing, particularly for folks who don't have any family support, sometimes the only person who you can turn to is your lawyer. One client told me, you're my emergency contact. And I found that both incredibly moving and also sad. Laura, I wanted to ask you about so-called progressive prosecutors. And for people who might be unfamiliar with this area, when, when we refer to progressive prosecutors, what does that mean in a practical sense? What it means is that the prosecutor agrees about a certain set of policies. They oppose, for example, cash bail, which is this idea that your freedom is tied to how much you can pay, not how dangerous you are. They are opposed to very long sentences when, say, 10 or 15 years would suffice. They're opposed to, you know, 250 to 9,000 years. They believe in taking a hard look at cases where there is the real possibility that the person was wrongfully convicted, even if that means conceding that their office committed misconduct. They tend to be very strict around seeking gang enhancements because those traditionally have been weaponized against people of color. They are generally opposed to trying kids as adults and more prone to look for alternatives to incarceration in some cases, including some felony cases where maybe diversion or some other kind of outcome would be, in their opinion, better. So that's, I think, the gist of the progressive prosecutor platform. And also, perhaps most controversially, they don't prosecute or don't emphasize the prosecution of certain low-level misdemeanors. And they tend to also focus on reducing the jail population. In other words, letting people out of jail who have served sufficient time and aren't posing a danger to public safety. Uh, I know this is a topic you've written about. Uh, How much promise do you see Um, in criminal justice reform that's coming from progressive prosecutors? And what are some of the problematic responses that we're seeing to the election of progressive prosecutors? Well, they had a honeymoon phase, I would say, between about 2018 and 2020, where they were getting elected all over the country, including in my town of San Francisco, and then in L.A., Boston, Philadelphia, St. Louis, Chicago, and now we are in the midst of a backlash. And that is driven by a perception that crime is rising. And to be clear, it is in many, many places. And also that there's a causal link between the rising crime and reform-minded DAs. And people associate their policies, which are centered around decarceration, as causing crime. And even though that isn't true. It's rising everywhere. Crime is rising in red states and purple states. It's rising in jurisdictions with centrist or conservative district attorneys. There is this almost knee-jerk reflex where people think, oh, a reformer DA is soft on crime. They're letting criminals out and they're running the streets and I don't feel safe anymore. And that is the theme of this election season, I feel like. And that's what we're in the throes of here in San Francisco, where 
we head to the polls in June to decide whether to recall our DA. That's what's happening in LA, where the recall effort against that DA is gathering steam. And I think recently in Illinois, a state lawmaker introduced a bill to recall the Cook County DA. So it's a lot driven by this sense that crime is rising and people feel unsafe, and then making the leap between that and people who are in office who are putting in policies that they ran in one are that are progressive, but that people now think are responsible for the current spike in violence. Yeah, Laura, I, th- I think we should give you a chance to talk about your new book, which I believe is forthcoming this year. And it's on a quite different topic to what we've been discussing up till now. It's actually about uh, parenting and about the sort of uh, role of mothers in their children's lives. It's called uh, Ambitious Like a Mother, Why Prioritizing Your Career is Good for Your Kids. And um, maybe you'd just like to outline the argument in the book and perhaps the genesis of the book for our listeners. Sure. And thank you for asking me. It's interesting. It's actually very tied to what we've been talking about in the sense that the book makes the argument that being an ambitious mother, going after your career, seeking out professional opportunities, even if at times they take you away from your family or at times you give that priority, is a healthy way to live your life and actually a good way to model independence and resilience, particularly financially and psychologically for your children. And it's an argument against women constantly being in this spiral of shame and self-recrimination about never doing enough, never being present enough, and always feeling like in some aspect of their lives, they're falling short. So my argument is essentially that you need to embrace that imbalance and that things tend to come back around in a helical way. And that there will be times when you can once again, prioritize your family, but it's okay. Sometimes when your job is so consuming and important that that has your attention. So basically it's trying to give women a respite from running around in a maze, searching for a mythical work-life balance and trying to be a selfless mother, which is not possible. Yeah, I found this very interesting that that the book is pushing back against kind of two stereotypes or models of how a mother should behave, the selfless mother and work-life balance. Where do you think those models come from? And and why do you think women are subject to these um, perhaps more constraining stereotypes than men? They come generations and generations back from sort of this cult of domesticity and the idea that mothers were much more suited to homemaking and being the primary parent. And also that if you're not a good mother in that very particular way, then, then what is your purpose really? So I think, you know, we've been living with that for a long time. And what's different now is that many people accept that there need to be two incomes and that most mothers need to work. And that in fact, it's okay for them to want to work, but then at the same time, we still impose the same old definitions and restrictions on them and cabin them off. And so sometimes it feels like not only are they failing at being a selfless mother, but they're also failing at being this kind of perfect career spouse who's going to balance everything and always make sure that the grocery shopping is done and that dinner's on the table on time. And I I don't know. I had an interesting upbringing in that my mom was really atypical for her generation. She went to medical school in the 1960s and 
she became a practicing physician, but also my parents really had a pretty traditional marriage in that she was also responsible for basically making sure that everything in her house ran on time in a functional way. And that is a very, very difficult situation to find yourself in. I mean, she was able to pull it off, but I certainly was not. And I don't think it should be the default. I was just going to ask uh, Lara about why you decided to write the book. Were you inspired by um, perhaps your students that you work so closely with, giving them sort of life advice and guidance? Or what inspired you to write the book at this time? Two things inspired me. One was my mother. And I felt like I really wanted to do her story justice because she just has a remarkable life arc. And I wanted to honor that. But the other one is, as you said, it was my students, particularly my my female students who are thinking about getting married and having families and wanting to be really transparent about what that looks like. Because between social media and television and whatever expectations we have in general society, they're being sold this image of perfection that's not achievable. And so I've chosen sort of consciously at various points to show them what it can look like or what it needs to look like at times. So I'll just give you an example. In 2018, I was working with my students on a case that ended up going to trial later that year. And we had this insane thing happen where we asked for extra time and the tribunal responded by giving us 24 hours less time as like a punishment for asking. So we had until midnight that night to file this appeal. And Um, I was supposed to pick up my kids from school at 4.30 and I had custody of them. I'm a single mom. And so when we found this out at 4.30 and I realized I wasn't going to be able to go anywhere, I thought, well, I guess I should just lock myself in the office right now and make this phone call. But then I thought, you know, they really need to see what this looks like. So I called my ex-husband and I explained, I said, you know, this is a very unusual situation and I'm so sorry, but you're going to have to leave work early and drive an hour to go get them and keep them overnight. And they watched that negotiation happen. And I think that's important. You know, I was not going to be able to be in two places at once and I was going to have to ask for help and they were going to watch me do that. And I did that to normalize it because it's really important for people to understand that sometimes things are kind of a mess and you muddle through and that's okay. I'm fascinated to know, Laura, about these various projects that you're engaged with. So the clinical work for many people is all-consuming and, you know, you, you would know obviously how kind of um, weighty that work can be and how emotionally distressing it can be at times. So in addition to doing all of that work, you also wrote a novel last year called A Good Mother. uh, And now, as Henry said, have this parenting book coming out, also Ambitious Like a Mother. So I'm fascinated to know how you find the time for all these projects and whether doing each of these projects do they kind of feed each other? Are they are they servicing different parts of yourself? Do you understand them collectively, or are you just um, just varying interests that you've effectively been able to combine? The secret to why I have time is that I'm divorced, and so when I have my kids, I'm really with my kids. But when I don't have them, I can work. And as I think both of you know, it's so important to have quiet time when you're trying to write. And that is not something that is easy to come by at all. If you have a family, particularly kind of a normal so-called intact nuclear family. It's been this strange upside of, of having the, the marriage not work out. I think that the projects, the novel was inside of me for a long time and it took many drafts and rejections and other things for it to come to life. And I was really excited and happy about that. And it explores a lot of the same themes. I feel like I just try to use different creative outlets to 
dive into these issues because they're so interesting, you know, ambition and crime and punishment and work and love and family. Those are the things that I think about all of the time. And so to be able to write fiction or nonfiction or a law review article or a legal brief or talk to you or advocate in court, it kind of in a strange way all feels part of the same thing, which is continually engaging and wrestling with these ideas. Yeah, speaking of which, speaking of hours in the day, we are very aware that we're coming to the last few seconds of our time for the interview. And so we'd like to ask you the question that we ask we ask all of our interviewees, which is, do you have a book or a podcast or a movie or even TV series that you would like to recommend people engage with, watch or read or listen to on the topic of civil discourse and debate or just on contemporary politics and culture generally? Oh, that's such a hard question to answer. I do the best I can to listen to a really wide range of podcasts and media because I think it's very important not to get stuck in an echo chamber. So just to kind of give you a random sampling, I listen to Pod Save America. I listen to Barry Weiss's Honestly. I listen to Jesse Single and Katie Herzog's Blocked and Reported. I listen to You're Wrong About. I listen to Maintenance Phase. All of these different people with different political perspectives who are incredibly smart and want to engage with the news of the day. And what I appreciate about them is not just the intelligence and the integrity, but also just the diversity of views. And so it would be hard for me if I had to pick one. I would say that Sarah Marshall's You're Wrong About is extraordinary for the range of topics that she covers, the kinds of guests that she has and just her radical empathy for people that even I have trouble summoning up much sympathy for, just recasting historical events in a completely different light. So I think that's probably my top recommendation. And it did win, I think, top podcast of the year from iHeartRadio. But there's so much out there. And I think what I would encourage all of your listeners to do is just read and listen widely. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It was so fun to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. 